We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, dealing with this issue of an older man who in his midlife walked away from the reality of the living God, and now he's writing in bitter reflection regarding the life that he's lived during those years. Solomon started off with a heart full of devotion to the Lord, and then we read that he married many foreign women, and these foreign women turned his heart away from the living God, and he became a man who worshiped numerous gods, and his devotion to the living God dissipated. And so, so he's writing this letter, and today's passage is so powerful. I want, I want to get it across, but Solomon uh, lived life only under the sun in Ecclesiastes, but there are moments when clarity breaks through the clouds, and he lives and he sees a biblical perspective. And so we've been covering only under the sun in chapters 1 and 2. And last week we talked about how, how Solomon was an Epicurean, which means he's someone who does pursues pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion compared to a hedonist who just does what he or she wants to do with little regard for people. An Epicurean pursues pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. And Solomon was a, a great connoisseur of wine, and he, he built incredible vineyards, and he had an irrigation system, and he had flocks and herds, and he had singers, and he had all of these things. And he said, I was wiser, more powerful than anyone who'd ever lived before me in Jerusalem. And yet, there's despair, and there's anguish in his life. And so this Epicurean who lived life in a Pursuit of pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. I said that if you live in middle class to upper middle class America, we struggle with creeping Epicureanism, which says it's all about pleasure, it's all about me, as compared to it's all about the kingdom of God. And, and so we, we come to this passage in chapter 3 that was made famous if you're older. There was a song released in 1965 by the birds entitled Turn turn, turn, written by a guy named Peter Seeger, who was an anti-war activist who also wrote um, If I Had a Hammer, remember that? And Where Have All the Flowers Gone? I mean, a, a folks, folk music guy. But, but people listen to that song and they say it's, a, it's kind of a celebration of life. I believe chapter 3, 1 to 8 is really a reflection of Life has an unending cycle of nothingness. It's a time to live, a time to die, a time to laugh, a time to grieve. And then the aftermath of that, the clarity breaks through. But let me just say this. I, I believe this. I believe that I know many noble pagans. Um, I talk to them. They, they don't believe that you can really define God, and they're not sure what happens when you die. In fact, later in chapter 3, Solomon has this famous, who knows what happens? Now, who knows? That's the way they live. Who knows? Um, and, and so, and they live with grace and dignity, and I don't see how they pull it off. Maybe it's because I've been reading the Bible a long time. But I, I believe this. I believe that if you believe that nothing exists beyond the grave, or you're not even sure that anything exists beyond the grave, and there's no real purpose in life, that everything is an ongoing, unfolding, cacophonic nonsense, I don't see how you don't live ticked off all the time. I mean, that, that, that's what Solomon's been rehearsed in the first two chapters. For example, he, he says, you know, he says, nobody appreciates me, basically in chapter one. You ever, you ever feel that way? I do. I'm not fussing at you guys, but yeah, you, you, I don't feel appreciated sometimes. My wife 
told me the other day that her favorite hour and a half of every week is holding the babies in the butterfly room in the second hour of worship. She just loves it. She says, I sit hold those beautiful babies and we talk and fellowship with dear people back there. I said, I love it. And I said, but, but how can that be your favorite hour and a half? I'm not there. And she said, exactly. <laughs> so you don't feel appreciated. And, and Solomon says, no one's going to remember when you die. You're going to die one day. There's a man who's in charge of World Vision years, years and years ago called Ed Dayton. And, and he said this. He said, my whole goal in life is to have, and that's before we had these things. We, we wore wristwatches. Is to have six friends who will carry my coffin, who during the 35 minutes of my funeral will not one time look at their watch. That's my whole goal. But because people forget. Solomon says, nobody's going to remember. And then he says this, when you die, there's every possibility you're going to leave it to a loser. Your children and grandchildren. I said last week, by the time your grandkids are finished with your money, 90% is gone. And then later he's going to say in the book, my body is falling apart. You get older, your body falls apart. So see, and just throw on some other things maybe aren't in Ecclesiastes, your team loses. I talked to a guy earlier, a really good guy, his two favorite teams are Penn State and South Carolina. He's having a bad day today. You know, and let me tell you, if you're under the age of 35, let me tell you something. There was a time when the Dallas Cowboys won football games. That was my team. There was a time, they were called America's team. They're not even Dallas's team now. They're horrible. Now that I'm bitter. Much more seriously, I, this week has been very discouraging for me. And that I feel like the, our governing process is broken. Broken. I feel like civility is dead. And a lot of us say, my portfolio looks more like Jimmy Buffett's instead of Warren Buffett's, you know? So how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you go through life without just being ticked off, without giving to despair? See, Solomon had given himself to despair. And now there, there's, a, there's a break in the clouds in this passage, and there's a moment of biblical lucidity. So here's the scripture. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to, I'm going to read verses 9 through 15. He gives us the key in keeping despair at bay. Listen, what gain has the worker from all of his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people... Fear before him that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So in this passage, he gives us 
three keys to pushing back to despair and then a proactive way to live that out. So three things, all found in verse 11 to start off with. Three things that pushes back despair. Number one, life has intrinsic beauty. Verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time. He steps back and he says, you know, in, ch- in chapter 1, there's a totally different perspective. He, he looks at the world around him in chapter 1. This is what he says in verse 4. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises, the sun sets, and hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north, and around and around the wind goes, and it circuits, and the wind returns, and all streams run to the sea, but the sea's never full to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. This is a weariness to me. I cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. It's just just no big deal. It just goes on and on and on. Man has no significance. Creation is just ongoing and ongoing. The sun rises, the sun hastens back and rises again. But this is a radical break chapter 3 from chapter 1. That's why the clouds part. Where he says, this is incredible. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. See, God made the heavens and the earth, and he said it is very good. And I, I know man has fallen into sin, creation has fallen into sin, but very good. It's something to celebrate. It's something to be very glad about. And so the, the issue we have is, is this world an accident or is it a theater? John Calvin said this, he said, the earth is the theater of God's glory. Do you enjoy the beauty of creation? Is it an intricate, wonderful creation that's upheld by the providential care of Jesus. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that in Christ all things hold together. He rules over creation. Or do we see it as a huge accident and a chaos that has no purpose? You've heard this quote. This is a statement made by Charles Darwin late in his life. Darwin died in 1892. His despair came, I think, primarily from the fact that he buried three children. And the last child he buried put him under. But he, he said this, my mind has changed in the last 20 or 30 years. Now for many years, I cannot, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have almost lost all taste for art or music. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws out of a large collection of mere facts. If I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once a week. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. Injurious, the loss of beauty. Uh, I was thinking about that, thinking about the sermon. I was driving home Friday and, and uh, as I was driving on 17, there was an eagle just circling the highway. And I thought, wow, that's a bald eagle. 
That's really cool. And then uh, last night I was coming home, and uh, there's a rainbow. I love rainbows. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Then about an hour after I got home, I was outside, and I looked over into the distant sky, and there were finger lightnings, you know, just... And I went, wow, isn't creation glorious? And I said, it's creation. Creation is glorious, and the Lord made it. As, as compared to saying, look at all the beauty, it's an accident. <laughs> See the difference? I, I don't know how you bear the weight of, of despair. I think of the simple little hymn. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. I can hear creation. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. It's just very simple. This is my Father's world. The birds, their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. So, so, so I can stand in our yard, and there's some wood storks that nestle in the tree this time of year. And you can hear them flying. You can hear their, their, their wings against the air. And you're going, wow. And you look at their migratory patterns, and you go, wow. Isn't creation glorious? See, there is absolute beauty in life. And this is a radical break from chapters 1 and 2. This is a biblical worldview that says there's intricacy and wonder and is providentially ruled and there's so much. So I push back despair by, by understanding there's, there's intrinsic beauty in life. Number two, I push back despair, same verse, verse 11, by understanding and affirming that Eternity is intuitively placed in my heart because I'm made in the image of God. Once again, verse 11, he has put eternity into man's hearts. That I intrinsically, intuitively know that there is an eternity and there are standards that are real and true and fixed. And then I go one step further and I say with Augustine when he wrote his confessions in about 400 AD, he said that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Eternity is in my heart. But see, the, the, the sad thing we know from Romans chapter 1 is it says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They just push it down. So some of the people here today, they're not believers. <clears throat> and and, and when, you, when you hear something about the great creator God who made the heavens and the earth and there's a design to life and there's a finality to life and there's a heaven and there's a hell, you push it down. You push it away and you say, no, that's nonsense. That's balderdash. That's baloney. No, it's not. It's truth. Don't suppress it. If you're not a believer, open your heart to the reality of Christ, to the forgiveness of sin by a bloody cross. It says, it goes on and says this. This is an incredible, I think, modern-day indictment. It's true every generation. I go, wow. It says, for, for what was known about God is, is plain to everyone because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No excuse. You see it. You see it. 
So I push back despair by understanding that there's eternity is planted in my heart. One of my favorite books is a book entitled Witness. It's a story about a guy named Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers was raised in Philadelphia in a non-believing home, the 30s, 20s and 30s. And Whitaker Chambers was a brilliant man. And went to college and became, he worked for a while, then went to college where he became a, a, a radical socialist communist. Ended up being in the spy network in the State Department. But anyway, his brother joined him in his commitments and his brother became an alcoholic and committed murder, or excuse me, killed himself. And so Whitaker Chambers became more and more bitterly involved in his worldview and he met a young woman who was also an anarchist. She upped him. She wanted to violently overthrow and destroy things. And he says, we, we got married and then we became pregnant. And he said, abortion was common in the Communist Party because so many of us believed it was a crime to bring children into such an evil, dark world. So when my wife got pregnant, I was joyful, but I hesitated to say anything to her. But then she said to me, we could not do this awful thing to our little baby, close quote. And he says this, it was through this child that God spoke to me. And here's the story. If anybody's had a little baby, can just feel this. His daughter's two years old. They're sitting in an apartment outside of Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. He says, it was through this child that God spoke to me. My daughter was in her high chair. I was watching her eat. She was two. She was the most miraculous thing that has ever happened in my life. I like to watch her even when she smeared porridge on her face or dropped it meditatively on the floor. My eyes came to rest on the delicate convolutions of her ear, those intricate, perfect ears. The thought passed through my mind, no, those ears were not caused by any chance coming together of atoms in nature, which was the communist view. They could only be created by immense design. The thought was involuntary and unwanted. I crowded it out of my mind, but I never wholly forgot it or the occasion. I had to crowd it out of my mind. If I had completed it, I should have had to say, design presupposes a great creator God. I did not know that at that moment, the finger of the living God had been laid upon my forehead. He goes on and talks about his conversion to Christ. So we, we talk about signals of transcendence. It's a fancy term. But it just means seeing things that point to the deep reality of the creator God. Birth. The, the, the meeting together of children. Understanding the, 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 the number of bones in the, in the hand, for heaven's sake. Or hearing. or I mean, Indian curry. Seriously. Taste buds. I mean, God gave us Indian curry. Not British food, but Indian curry. You know? um, these are all signals of transcendence. Did you see the full moon this week? Unbelievable. See, he's put eternity in our 
hearts. If I'm to push back despair, I'm going to say, you know, eternity's planted in my heart. Thirdly, we've, we've got to understand that God is glorious and wonderful and creator and ultimately incomprehensible in that we believe the Bible is true and we believe the Bible is true truth, but it's not exhaustive truth. And so Solomon, Solomon steps back. And again, Solomon says, I'm wiser and more powerful than any man who's ever lived. And then I think he's just being honest. And, and, and Solomon was a Renaissance man. He was like Michelangelo on steroids. He was incredible. And he, he looks at the character of God and he, and he says this. He said, I... Yet so, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Verse 11, verse 14. I, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever and nothing can be added to it nor anything taken uh, from it. God has done it so that people might fear him. He, he says, I, I know about the creator God that's eternal, but I, I, don't, I can't fully comprehend him because he's God. That, that's the way it is. Can you show the picture of the guy standing with Alex Trevet, if you're up there, if you guys can hear that. Just show the picture. I can't get, there you go, thank you. This, this is a guy named Ken Jennings. And those of you that are Jeopardy people, I like Jeopardy. I've always thought Jeopardy was unfair, just as in a commercial. So you'll be watching Jeopardy and somehow get Final Jeopardy, some obtuse question about physics, and they'll get $4,000. And then I used to go to this next show, I forgot it was, and somebody gets $50,000 because they know the Smurfs are purple. I just thought, this isn't fair, but Jeopardy, Ken, Ken Jennings, he won 74 straight Jeopardy games. And, and there's a, even a theory that kind of threw away, but he, he, was, he was brilliant. 74, he won $3.5 million playing Jeopardy. Lived overseas, calls Edmonds, Washington, his home. Now listen, Solomon would give Ken Jennings a run for his money. Solomon had it all together and he knew things. But Solomon comes to this point of saying, you know, God is glorious, he's eternal, he's great. And as I contemplate his wonder and his transcendent splendor, this great king who was wise and powerful and had 300 concubines and 700 wives, think about that, said, I feel small. I feel small. See, that the contemplation of the glory of God should make us feel humble and lead us to worship. So there's a story. It supposedly takes place in about 1050. There's a king named Canute. Canute had some people that came to his court. He was supposedly in the area of Gaul and France, and, and they were there to earn his favor, and they started complimenting him. Oh, great King Canute, no one is as powerful as you. No one is as gracious. Oh, great Canute. And you know, they had a castle and was on the sea, and so he said, let me, let me, let me, let me show you how powerful I am. And so he got, he got, a, he got a, a chair, and he put it at the edge of a tidal sea, low tide. And he sat down. The story goes that he said, to the tide, stop. Stop. Do not come in. The story goes, guess what happened? 
The tide came in. And he started getting his feet wet. And 30 minutes later, his ankles were getting wet. Then the bottom of his royal robe was getting wet. And then it, his legs got wet. Show the, can you show the picture of King Canute up there? It's a black and white. That's it. And it says he, he sprang up. This is the account. Continuing to rise as usual, the tide dashed over his feet and his legs without respect to his royal person. Then the king leapt backwards saying, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name, but he who made the heavens and the earth and the sea to obey his eternal laws. King Canute. He staged a scene that says to rebuke the flattery of sycophants or courtiers. And I just thought in my own life, your life, we need to have King Canute moments where we say, you know, it's really not about me. I, or I, I, can't, I can't begin to do what you've asked me to do, Lord, unless you empower me. God, you are gloriously wonderful and ultimately incomprehensible, and I want to worship you. That's why when Romans celebrates all that God's done for us in chapters 1 through 8 and then 9 through 11, the mystery of providence, he starts off chapter 1 by saying, I beseech you, brothers, by all the mercies of God to present your body as a living worship of sacrifice unto the Lord. In light of all that Jesus has done for us, worship him. In other words, have a king cannot moment. So, so that's, that, that, that's his assessment. Assessment number one is life has intrinsic beauty. Number two, eternity is in our hearts. Number three, God is glorious and to be worshipped and is incomprehensible. And now, now the resolves, very quickly, three resolves. It's very, it's just, this is just good stuff. I hope you get it. Resolve number one, he says this, I'll just read verse 12 again. He says, he says, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil because this is God's gift to man. So, so if, if I'm to push back despair, I've got to have these convictions and then I've got to live this way. Be joyful, I've got to do good, and I've got to embrace life. It's just simple. So, so first of all, be joyful. I ask you, I ask myself, what is your joy index? What's your joy index? Uh, in Psalm 30, David is celebrating the potential building of the temple, and he writes this psalm for a future celebration, and, and he talks about how God has released him and blessed him, and he said, in my arrogance, I said, I shall never be moved, and he said, then God hid his face for a moment, and my, my life fell apart. <laughs> and he said, I cried out to God. I pled for mercy. And he says this, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I give you thanks forever. I said, well, what's my joy index? Or, or Proverbs, Proverbs 29, verse 6. Says this that, that the evil man is ensnared in his transgressions, but the righteous man sings and rejoices. There it is. Am I singing and rejoicing? An evil man is ensnared in his 
transgression. But the righteous man sings and rejoices. So I'm, I've been reading some stuff by a woman named Barbara Fredrickson. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, a basketball school. And uh, uh, Barbara Fredrickson received her PhD at Stanford, did advanced study of Michigan. She's just a very bright woman. And she's uh, professor of clinical psychology at Chapel Hill. And she's kind of the expert on something called positivity. And she's written a book called Positivity, and I read it. And it's, it's, a, it's a good book. It's what I call common grace theology. Common grace is, is, is laws or principles that are equally observed or observed by all people to be true. So it's common grace, you know, it's common grace. So she talks about the importance of positivity, and she has a, a theory. She says, for every, for every one negative thought or one negative experience to, to be positive, you must have three positive thoughts or experiences. So she says, you've got to choose positivity. And, and she talks about the, the reason you're, you're positive is that you'll, 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 you won't have ulcers, and heart disease will not be as readily available to you, and you'll be easier to live with, and you'll be a better friend and a better spouse or dad or mother, whatever. And all those things are true. And I said, yeah, amen. I read the book and I said, this is, I recommend the book. It's a good little book. The name of God is never mentioned, ever. And, and so she, she has this last chapter in positivity and it's entitled a, a, a toolkit for positivity on page 200 and 201. It says, I'll just list them 12 things. Be open. These are all good. I think. Be open. Create high-quality connections or friendships. Three, cultivate kindness. So good. Four, develop distractions to get your mind off of your troubles. Don't, don't dwell on your troubles. Five, dispute negative thinking. Don't receive it. Six, find nearby nature that moves you to gladness. Seven, learn to apply your strengths. Eight, meditate mindfully. Nine, meditate on loving kindness. Amen. Ten, ritualize gratitude. Eleven, savor positivity. And twelve, visualize your future, whatever that means. But, but I, I'm reading that, and I, I keep I'm reading the book, and I'm going, okay, what is the basis of positivity, Dr. Fredrickson? What's the basis? I mean, you say be positive. Why not be like Solomon and say, life under the sun is a burden, which is also the same statement of Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus or Martin Heidegger or Friedrich Nietzsche and all the existentialists. Basically, it's like curse God and die. So why choose your path instead of this path? What, what, is, the, what is the basis of positivity? Let me tell you something. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I'm preaching to Christians right now. We should be joyful people. Let me tell you the basis of our positivity. Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We have a shepherding God who watches over us and guards our souls and our lives. All things work together for good in our lives. And it's hard to see sometimes, but it's true. He leads us into green pastures and quiet waters. This shepherding God leads us. It's not the capricious, unfolding drama of nothingness. He leads us. He leads us in such a way that he restores our soul. Right now, if you're a believer and you're reading the Bible and you're with godly people, he's restoring your soul. 
He's filling you up again to go out and live for him right now on the Lord's day. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and some of you have, some of you have buried children, some of you have buried a spouse in the last year, some of you just heard that your child has cancer. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't fear evil. You don't. Because when you die, you know what? You go to heaven if you trusted Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross and he said to the thief on his right, today you shall be with me in paradise, just put your name in that sentence. Today, John, today, Mary, you will be with me in paradise. And when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that's you. That's me. I mean, really. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil, for, for, for you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they come from me. Lord, even, even when you discipline me, you discipline me in love. And it's always with an Abba Father's affection. There were times when I disciplined my children, especially my son, out of anger. The Father never does that to us. Ever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even my enemies look at me and go, you know, God's blessing him. You anoint my head with oil, which means that's a statement of blessing. You not only anoint my head with oil, but my cup runs over. It comes down my head and it flows into a cup. And surely goodness and mercy shall hunt me down all the days of my life. Right now, the living God is, is hunting you down with goodness and mercy in the name of Jesus. And when I die, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, you know, I, I, I want to, I, I, it makes me want to sing and dance and pump my fist and hug Germans and Nordic people who don't like to be hugged, you know, don't, don't, don't. Just go in and find people and like, I want to hug you. I know you don't like to be I want to hug you. I'm so happy. What's the basis of our joyfulness? It's the living God. Secondly, very quickly, he says, be, be joyful, do good. Just, just do good. Just, just do good. Jesus says in Matthew 25, inasmuch as you've done the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Mark, excuse me, John chapter 13, I've been reading parts of John and thinking about it. John 13, just an amazing passage. On the night he's betrayed, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. I mean, wa I mean the washing feet is something that in a, in a, a, a Jewish home of significant a wealth you hired somebody from the nations to do because a non-Jew does not want to wash your feet because you've been walking in places that are ceremonially unclean. So you don't wash feet. You just don't do it. And so on the night he's betrayed, Jesus washes feet. And it's amazing. And then he says this, you call me Teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Listen, if you know these things, 
happy or blessed are you if you do them? And I just thought, when's the last time I washed somebody's feet? I mean, not, not literally necessarily, but when I had a way to serve someone, to do something that was unexpected. Listen, just do, just do good. Go out and do good. Just wash people's feet in the name of Christ. You push back despair if you do that. See, you push it back. Just do good. In the midst of complexity and disappointments and aging, he says, you embrace life. Number three, you do good, then you embrace life. Today is the last day of Sukkot. In the Jewish faith, they start on one Sunday and end on the second Sunday. Sukkot is also from Leviticus 23, which means the Feast of Tabernacles. In Sukkot, uh, can you show the picture of a little tabernacle, a little dwelling up there? Uh, Sukkot is a time when you, you, you go into these little places. I just talked to somebody who said, I was in New York and saw these all over the place, didn't know what they were for. Now I know is. It's, uh, it's got to have vegetation on the top, and it's got to be a, a place where you go in there at different times during the day and at night, and you'll read and you'll pray, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles to remember the Lord God guarded and guided the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, and they, they lived in, in lean-tos, basically. It was just a reminder. And what's interesting, on the first Sunday of Sukkot, you read the book of Ecclesiastes. And they, they read Ecclesiastes to show and to know that this life is a passing reality. They, they read that because they, they said this book really underscores the fact that all of life is a passing reality. And I think about the things that we give our lives to. And I, I thought about, you know, we give our lives to having a good BMI, body mass index. And my, my goal is to be able to dress like those speed skaters doing the Olympics, that's those skin tight you know, things and walk around, you know, just kidding. You're gonna lose your appetite for lunch if I say anything else right now. Or we, we get all concerned about our financial portfolio, our health. See, all, the thing, all these things can be taken away from us, but Christ cannot be taken from us. That's what Sukkot is all about. We affirm the things that are really important. And we say that this life is a passing reality. So how is it with you? Are you living life above the sun? Do you understand there's beauty, that eternity is in your heart, that God is glorious and incomprehensible? Does that humble you? And in light of that, are, are you joyful? Do you do good? Do you embrace life? I mean, just embrace life, love life. Really think about it. I mean, just people say to me all the time, I mean, it's just a passing thing. How are you doing? You know, you know what is it? Just great, thank you. Hanging in there, buddy, whatever. But then think, how, how are you doing? If you're a Christian, let me tell you how you're doing. Your sins are forgiven. 
You're in the Father's hand. No one can snatch you from his hand. The Father is watching over you. It may mean disease, but ultimately he's going to work it out. And when you die, you go to heaven. You know what, how you're doing? You're doing pretty cotton-picking good. You know what I mean? Therefore, we should be joyful. We should do good. And we should embrace life. So go ahead and embrace life. Love others in the name of Christ. Live above the sun. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and thank you for the incredible wisdom of this burnt out older man. And I pray we will not be burnt out older people. I thank you for this moment of lucidity in the heart and life of Solomon that is so instructive to us centuries and centuries and centuries later. I pray for those among us who are suppressing the truth of the living God so they can do their own thing. I pray you speak to them of the need for a Savior, of a sin-bearing Savior who takes away the sin of those who run to him and gives hope and purpose. So God, this week, may we be joyful, may we do good, and may we embrace life. May we see beauty around us and rejoice in it. May we look at a little baby and see, as Whitaker Chambers did, an intricate ear that can only be described by a great creator God who made the heavens and the earth. Or see the beauty of creation or hear the laughter of friends and say, this is good. Thank you for letting me celebrate this week with a group of older, older, older women who just love life. What a testimony that was to me. So we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.